Welcome to episode number 34 of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you start and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host and an MBA student in the class of 2020 at the USC Marshall School of Business. I've had my hand in entrepreneurship and business since 2012 when I launched Just Go Fitness and now with Just Go Grind. In this episode, we have Paul Loeb, who is the founder of Drop Track. He also started No Ego Records, which has quite the interesting business model. It's been profitable since the beginning, actually, in music licensing, which is really cool. And with Drop Track, this is a company that helps record labels and artists promote their music and get feedback from global DJs, blogs, playlisters, radio, and industry contacts. And he built the thing himself. It's incredible what he's been able to do wide variety of skills and in this episode we discuss all of that the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast and if you go over to itunes search just go grind you can leave a rating review and help support the show without further ado here is paul from drop track paul welcome to the show hi there thanks for having me yeah glad to have you on and when i when i saw your, your background with drop track it was like He's done a, a lot of different things in the music industry with his own stuff. And I'm like, I'm very curious as to how this all got started and how you built it. So it's it's going to be interesting today. And I want to dig into first, like how you even got into music, like way back when in the beginning. Sure. Well, I think you can probably blame my parents for that. <laughs> I started taking piano lessons at age five and that was their fault. And I feel so bad because they you know, would take me to lessons every other week or so and I would just never practice and I'm I'm sure they were really <laughs> happy about that investment. Of course. <laughs> later in school I started playing the clarinet and then in uh high school I also learned the trumpet for the marching band because you can't hear the clarinet in the marching band and I wanted to play something <laughs> that you could hear. And I continued to play both those instruments into college. I played in the USC marching band. I marched in the Rose Parade, and you know that was pretty fun. Nice. And so I, I kind of had this classical and jazz music background. And then uh, in college, I started DJing. So I started DJing at frat parties. It was mostly hip hop music and top forty. And you know, around the same time, started going to a lot of shows, electronic dance music, raves, if you will. Yeah, nearby, you know, like EDC was right next to USC where I went to school, so it was just right next door. <laughs> and you know, so I definitely got started getting into that scene and, and started DJing uh, electronic music as well. So yeah, it's it's been with me from the very beginning. Yeah, it's funny. So you kept it going though the whole time. There wasn't really many like huge breaks with that music and everything. No, I would say music's been part of my life every day. Nice. And then I know you mentioned like I think it was on like LinkedIn or something. It was like music business and technology, like when did the business part of it come into play where you knew you had like an interest in at least doing your own thing? You know, also at an early age, I started a, essentially a computer consulting company where I would teach my elderly neighbors how to set up their first computer or how to use a <laughs> printer or how to set up email. And I would make house calls. And again, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to my parents, my mom who would, you know, drive me to these house calls across town, wait in the car reading a book while I go in and fix somebody's <laughs> computer. And uh, so it, it started from there. And then around I want to say like 1999, I started making websites again for neighbors, like small businesses in the community, and eventually turned that into another type of, you know, like freelance development company where I would make websites. There was one neighbor I remember that had a, a, a local hockey store. They sold hockey equipment. And so we bought thehockeystore.com. Um, <laughs> it's not up there anymore, but it was one of the first like e-commerce websites using CGI bin and Pearl code. And yeah, you're, it's taken me back. But Jeez, <laughs> definitely man, that's crazy. the business part combined with technology at an early age as well. Yeah. And for like, helping people with the tech like that first business, like how are you getting these clients first? You said like neighbors, but you're just like, are you walking door to door? Like, Hey, I know these things are people struggling. Like, how did you, how did that work? Well, I advertised. You did. Oh man. We had a neighborhood newsletter that was sent out by the local real estate agent as a way, you know, to keep her top of mind in case you're going to sell her out your house. But there were always room for inserts for advertisements. So I remember going to like an office depot, buying a huge ream of neon green paper. So it would stand <laughs> out and you couldn't, you know, miss it, print it up. My company was called Paul's computer basics at the time on these flyers. <laughs> and then went over to the real estate agent lady's house and stuffed each one of these flyers in all of her newsletters and, and they would go out and we did this several times. It was definitely the, the best way to get new business. 
Wow. How old were you at this time? Like roughly? How old were you? This was probably like 12, 13. Okay. So really early, already had this itch. You know you wanted to do something. And was it like, like how many clients or people were you working with? And when did you have time for this? At the height of it, I probably had about 20 clients, including like some office buildings, like a medical office building where I did IT for the entire building. And you know, time, I don't know, it was weekends, it was night, it was whenever my mom was free to take me. So that's like, awesome. And then, and then like going into like the website business, is it just because you were playing with these things yourself already? Like you were kind of just, you had the tech, you were playing with websites to go, like, oh, I can help other people as well. Like what, how did that progression go? Yeah, I think I started, you know, programming in school. We had like the Apple LC2 computer or, or, or something even older, and we learned basic and we learned how to make the snake game <laughs> on the computer using basic. And from that time, I, I had an interest in, in programming and kind of getting the computer to do what I wanted it to do. And websites was kind of just a natural progression from that. I read a lot of books. There's a publisher O'Reilly that makes very detailed programming language books. I remember I had one, the Perl one with a camel on it. It's very, very popular. <laughs> and uh, I taught myself how to code with the idea that it was for particular clients. Like, I don't know that I ever had a personal website early on, or I was doing this thing just for fun. It was always tied to a business or there was somebody that needed a website for something and I would figure out how to make it uh, along the way. Nice. And it reminds me actually of, um, I think it was, it must've been like, I don't know if it was, Probably like 18, 19, I'm trying to, it was, it was definitely college. We, I was making a website with my, with my best friend and we, we had seen like the social network. So it must've been college. And, and then we wanted to make a website. So we got like, you know, like coding for dummies or something. One of those yeah. books, you know, just to like learn the basics of HTML, CSS to be able to build something. And it's, it's such a cool feeling to like, like you said, you see it on the computer that once you do it and just like, Oh my God, I made this. It's amazing. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned HTML and CSS. The great thing about those websites or, or sorry, those languages is when it comes to websites, a lot of time you can just view the source of other people's code and, and you can very clearly see spelled out for you how things are done. It's a little more complicated now with, you know, the, the format that some of these websites are generated and a lot of the codes compressed and intentionally obscured. So you can't do this. But, you know, yeah. back in the day, it was real easy as a way of teaching yourself, just, you know, not necessarily copy other people's code, but, but look at how they're doing things and, and find a very similar way. Yeah. And I remember they said in there, you can like, you know, view a page source and you could see different websites and what they were reusing. And it was like, oh my gosh, like it's, exactly. it's not rocket science in many ways, especially the early, like early on basic type of websites. And like you said, it gets much more complicated now, but that stuff has always been kind of fascinating to me. With that though, so you did the website. So what was next? Obviously you had the music going at the same time, but in terms of business then, what was next for you? So what happened next is, you know, I, I went to college and out of college or actually in college as part of a marketing class project, I started a company with uh, a classmate and a, a very close friend. Um, and we started a company uh, that was originally called Port Card. And the idea was to protect kids from internet predators on sites like MySpace. Okay. At the time, it was really a big deal. MySpace was always in the news. There was this, you know, growing concern about internet safety. And we developed a technology that could verify the identity of people to make sure that they really were who they said they were. So we raised some funding for that company. You know, it was literally started as a, like a marketing class exercise. And, you know, we thought it had some legs. We raised some money. We built out the first version of the program. We were, I was personally invited to Facebook's very first F8 developer conference. Really? We one of their launch partners to talk about how we use their platform to provide safety. And we partnered nationally with the Boys and Girls Clubs of America to, you know, push this out to their parents. And um, it, things were going really well. And then <laughs> it kind of, you know how the story goes, uh, Facebook made a change to their terms of use and their privacy policy, which effectively put us out of business overnight with the way that we were doing things. And it just wouldn't be allowed anymore going forward. Wow. And that's one of the risks you take when you build your entire business basically on, on the back of other platforms that you don't control. And so what we thought about is, hey, we still have all this money that we've raised. We went back to the investors. We said, here's the deal. Do you want us to keep going and try something different? Or do you want your money back? And they were all, to their credit, very supportive of us pivoting and finding something else. They invested in me and the co-founder of the team, not necessarily the product itself. And we took that as a vote of confidence to pivot into something new. 
And so while we were trying to figure out kind of what the new business idea was, we started doing freelance web and app development. So learning on my earlier experience doing freelance web development, now this was, you know, 2009. So apps were finally starting to take off. Everyone and their mother wanted an app. Um, (laughs) and, And so we built a lot of, you know, custom iPhone and Android apps for everyone from musicians to real estate companies to hospital lift tracking supervision equipment just all kinds of random apps that anybody would want and one thing we started noticing is restaurants wanted apps so we we started pitching a lot of restaurants on building you know customized apps sort of like only McDonald's or Chipotle had at the time where you could customize a burrito and then go pick it up um, right. and pay for it in the app. This was before like Grubhub and Seamless and Postmates and all those things that are, are more common now. Yeah. And so we noticed there was a demand here. We started pitching these restaurants and they loved the idea. They wanted an app. And then we told them, oh, it's going to take about six months and it's going to cost $20,000. And they looked at us like we were crazy because no <laughs> restaurant like has a marketing budget. They, you know, they just think apps should be free because everyone has them. They didn't really understand what they were getting into. So we took a step back and we said, okay, the demand's there. The business model is not. The pricing is, is not something that these customers can handle, but there's certainly a large number of these potential customers if we can figure that out. Yeah. So we took some of the, the money we still had in the bank from the prior investment and we created a white label app platform, basically, where instead of taking six months to build an app and $20,000, we were then able to go back to these same restaurant customers and say, it's only going to be $500 and it'll be a week. You give us your menu and your logo and we'll turn an app around for you and you'll be live. And that was a much more palatable sell to these restaurants. And so we were able to start signing them up, scale that business uh, to in the first year we did uh, half a million dollars in revenue and then ended up selling the company to a national advertising firm a year later. So that was kind wow. of you know, <laughs> my first foray in, into real startup land, but it, it started as, as a marketing class project at, at school. Yeah, that is such a wild story. And I'm sure even to tell that you're thinking back about that crazy times, but even like the beginning, so you're in marketing class. So this is at USC, right? You said like in college? Yeah. Like, what makes you think like, oh, let's get investors and really go after this? Like, what was the the thought process in terms of like the timing on that was like, oh, yeah, we're gonna need funding because we need actually to grow this into a real company. We're gonna need money. Was it family and friends at first? Like, yeah, it was family and friends seed round, essentially. And um, a lot of it was like I said, it was based on the vision originally of protecting kids online. It was very much in the news. It was top of mind. And it was also a combination of investment in the team. So, you know, our, our family and friends believed in, in me and the co-founder enough to write some checks to get it started. Yeah, that's awesome. And then and then with the white labeling business, so it's basically just like you had, essentially it's a template, right? So you had a template ready to go for any restaurant. You just had to plug and play their different information in, right? Exactly. And then there was also a, a back-end system where the restaurants could go in and, and manage their inventory, essentially the pricing and accept payments and view the orders and have them faxed to the restaurant or printed out on the point of sale system. All that sort of integration was kind of done on the back-end as well. Yeah. And going through that process, I mean, you're building this thing and you're getting a lot of traction. Obviously, the funding, you got funding and everything. And then how does that go from that to like decision to sell? I mean, did you think you were going to sell the company eventually or like how did that go? Well, it was a a little serendipitous, but it was also just good timing. The thing about working in the restaurant business and for these types of small business restaurant customers is we ended up doing a lot of back office tech support type work on their computer systems. We're still running Windows 98, figuring out how to (laughs) set up the printer more so than we were actually able to spend time on building and growing the business. So both me and my co-founder, we talked about this. We just kind of grew a little disillusioned with the restaurant business. And it's not what we originally set out to do when we're talking about an internet company with online safety. (laughs) And beyond that, what happened serendipitously is we went to a trade show. We went to the National Restaurant Association show in Chicago, where, you know, all these restaurant buyers and customers and vendors are all gathered in one place. And we had a booth where we were showing the app and we were trying to get more restaurant customers. And one person that stopped by our booth happened to run a national advertising company that puts ads, like display ads in 
restaurants. So in like a men's room in the bathroom above a urinal, there's a hat. <laughs> yep. there's, there's just a couple companies nationwide that do this. This is one of them. And so uh, he expressed immediate interest. Like he walked up to our booth and said, oh, some of my customers could use this app. And we thought, oh, well, we need a whole bunch of customers. So immediately <laughs> the synergy was clear. You know, it, was a, it was a pretty quick turnaround in, in terms of the due diligence that we did. And then, yeah, we sold the company. Wow. And then obviously you sell the company, so you have some funds from that. What was the next decision? What did you decide to do? So as part of the acquisition, we, me and my co-founder stayed on with the company that bought us for a year was the, the term of, of the agreement as sort of a transition period. Okay. So I wasn't immediately free to just, you know, go in and do something <laughs> new, but I, I started looking. And so, you know, I, put up my LinkedIn profile, you know, all these other job websites. And one day out of the blue, I get a email from a recruiter at Beats by Dre. And they say, you know, we see your background. We think you'd be a good fit to come work for us here at Beats in Los Angeles. Yeah. And so I say, that sounds interesting. I like Dr. <laughs> Dre. I mean, I'm a fan of the chronic and hip hop and all that. And yeah, you know, I, I heard about the headphone company. Sure. So I go have some interviews and, and I end up going to work for, for Beats. And that was in a, a software engineering role in the first place. And then uh, it was promoted to a manager. So I led a team of other software engineers, was there through the acquisition of Apple, um, and then stayed on a little longer and then ventured off to more tech companies as, as part of my, my career on, on that side. So well, yeah, dig in deeper on that one a little bit. So what was that like working at Beats by Dre? It was both good and bad. And maybe not bad, but not what I expected. You know, you okay. expect, you hear these by Dre, it's it's the music industry, it's going to be celebrities all the time coming through the office, and Dr. Dre is going to be there. And that's not really the case. The, the case is they're in the consumer electronics business. And they are more than anything beholden to like shipping schedules from China and overseas delays with customs and like all that kind of nuance that that a big company has to grapple with. Yes, there were celebrities that came through the office, but mostly they stayed with the the marketing team and not so much with the engineering people where I was. Yes, Dre came into the office every once in a while, but it was it was really just to, you know, put a final check on the headphones or or something like that. He wasn't really too involved with the day-to-day. But, you know, other than that, the culture was was fun. There was always music playing somewhere in the office. There, you know, was just very cool people that are um smart and into the same, you know, entertainment music world that I am. And yeah. it, it was pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. What an, ex- what an experience. And then, and so you said you, how long were you there for actually? So I was there for two years. For two years. Okay. And then, so what was after that exactly? What'd you do that next? Well, so yeah, I was like number employee number 200 or so at Beats and grew to about 500 before the company was acquired by Apple. And when that happened, I became one of 90,000 Apple employees. <laughs> So the scale yeah. is <laughs> another level of um, them changing the culture, them you know putting so much legal red tape on anything you want to get done. Right. With good reason, it's a big company. Any potential problem for them or quality issue with code or with a device could cause lawsuits. So it's it's very understandable that they're as protective as they are. Yeah. But it was just a big shift from what I signed up for originally. And so again, on LinkedIn, a recruiter out of nowhere sent me a message saying, we've got this opportunity. Uh, we think you'd be a good fit. So I left Apple to work for a company called Ubiquity Networks. And I moved from engineering into product management at that time. Okay. And so with all these different things you're working on and all these experience at different companies, where does, there's two things, obviously. One is no ego records and another is drop track. When do those come into the fold here? Great question. So no ego records started after college. Um, after I graduated from USC, I realized, you know, I, I want to have a career in music somehow. I really like the idea of being a music producer, but I don't have the technical skills to do that. So I sought out places where I could learn those skills. And I ended up going to audio engineering school for a year and a half after undergrad um, in a school in Burbank, California to learn Pro Tools, essentially. And I, I, I learned in a real recording studio with some very talented and experienced music producers and you know learned everything from producing music, but also how to do audio for film and TV and surround sound mixing. And it was a very comprehensive program where I actually learned the hands-on skills I would need to be a music producer because that's you know what I thought uh, and to some degree still want to do yeah. with my career. Out of that program, I gained a couple insights. One is that 
even if I were to get signed by a major record label, that's a dream for a lot of people, that that's not necessarily a good deal in my favor. And that, that kind of mirrored what I learned taking music industry classes at USC, is that the structure of a lot of those deals is very one-sided where you actually don't earn any money uh, and you don't you, you have a loan basically that you have to recoup with all your sales. And until you reach that certain threshold, you don't actually get any money. Yes. And so a combination of that learning and, you know, this is the spawn to some degree of the digital and streaming area and wondering like, how much can a, a label really do for me that I can't do on my own <laughs> with, with some sort of, you know, internet marketing. Right. I decided to start my own label as an independent label called No Ego Records, primarily as a vehicle to get my own music out there. And then also other students that were in my audio engineering class that I thought were very talented, made great music, and just uh, needed some marketing support behind them to go to the next level. And so with that basis, I kind of you know figured out what it's going to take to start a label, <laughs> started a, a corporation, raised some money for that venture as well, brought on a co-founder. And kind of went from there. Yeah, when with No Ego Records, like, did you just kind of map out what you the plan, the vision for this thing first? Like, how did that go? Because everyone, like, especially people like listening to this podcast, are either trying to launch a business, grow a business, that type of thing. And so, what were some of the first like planning or strategy steps you took for that? So the vision from day one has been to have a profitable record label without the requirement of having a hit record. And that might sound a little counterintuitive, but <laughs> of course the dream is to have a hit record and, and to you know, have millions of streams on Spotify and, and whatever the case may be. But it turns out that's not really where the money is, especially for independent labels. The money is in sync licensing, in publishing, in putting your songs in commercials, on TV shows and movies. These companies have budgets and they pay up, up front and then they also pay in perpetuity every time your song is played in a TV show that's syndicated on cable or, or something like that. And to me, that sounded like a much better deal in trying to go after those deals than it was to chase the 99 cent iTunes download or the <laughs> 0.006 cents per Spotify stream model. And so that, that was the focus from the beginning. So uh, I signed talent with the understanding that, yes, we're going to promote the music and we're going to try to get it played by DJs and post it on blogs and you know, everything that, that goes along with record promotion, but our main business is in licensing. And the, the goal there is to make songs that sound to a degree like other popular songs, yeah. but are much less expensive for a music director or a music supervisor to put into a film or a project that they're working on because they don't have the full budget to get the Skrillex song, for example. But <laughs> if they can find a song that sounds kind of like that, has the same energy and is a fraction of the cost, that's a win for everybody. Yeah. That, that was very much the focus from the beginning. Yeah. And so I mean, that's a smart way. How did you come up with that though? Like, because everyone doesn't do that, obviously, for these, I assume, for independent record labels. Like, how did you even think, like, oh, yeah, we're actually make money right away and do licensing? Like, was it from class you learned something? Like, what was it that? Helped? So, part of it was definitely class. So, I, USC, I was a music industry minor. And a lot of what I learned there was on where the money is in the business. And two things came out, uh, which are publishing, which I already mentioned, like the sync licenses yeah. and the ownership of, of songwriting and ownership of masters. And also, the live touring business and live events. And one of my favorite classes in college was live music production with Ken Lopez, where the project of the class was to throw a show. <laughs> and you had, a, you had a team and my team put on a rave downtown and the teacher came out and he was dancing. And it, it was awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. But I, yeah, so that was my takeaway is that you can make money really in this business by doing publishing or by doing live shows. And I chose to go on, on the publishing route. Gotcha. And then how did you come up with the name? I did not. It was, it was a fraternity brother that came up with it. Okay. And I thought it was great <laughs> it was against what a lot of the music industry represents or appears to represent. And it was definitely attractive for artists that, that feel aligned with that. And it, the music should speak for itself without every other bit of ego and, and image that goes along with an artist. Right. And to that point, how were those artists coming? How did you find these artists? I, you said like somewhere your, your classmates and everything. What about beyond that then? Were there other ones? How did you get those? Sure. So we accept a lot of demos. Even today, I, I listen to you know a handful of demos every day that people send. I, I try to listen to everything because you never know where that that next grade is going to come <laughs> true, from. True, true, true. And so yeah, it's some degree of 
like you mentioned, classmates, friends of friends that, oh, hey, you know, this guy's a producer, you should check him out, or you should go to this guy's show, you should listen to them. I like what they're doing. And it, it could be, you know, me or, or my co-founder going on SoundCloud and just perusing through a myriad of playlists to, to find that next thing that nobody else has, has latched onto yet, and then also receiving demos. So th- those are the main ways. Yeah, and so then to that point, so how are people typically finding your site? I mean, are you ranking in Google? Is it like the other marketing efforts you're putting forward? Like, I'm curious about that whole process. So it's funny that you mentioned ranking in Google because for a long time, I actually ranked number one on Google for dance music label. <laughs> so you can, you can search dance music label on Google and we would pop up on, on the top result. Damn. We also had pretty good success with like tech house record label Los Angeles or electro house label Los Angeles, those types of long tail keywords. Yeah. That I didn't really do anything in particular to rank for those other than our main website, noegorecords.com is based on WordPress, yep. which has a lot of, you know, out of the box best practices for SEO. Yep. And we had pages on there created like, you know, electric house <laughs> music label, dance music label. And at the time there, I guess, just wasn't a whole lot of competition. So we, we started getting quite a bit of organic traffic from SEO. Nice. So that's funny, like WordPress to that point of like, you know, out of the box SEO, like I've had just go fitness and just go grind and the other side too, like ranked because of a lot of it because of the starting point, at least with WordPress, obviously you create more content with that, but like, yeah, they have really good SEO out of the box, which is great. So anyone creating a website, WordPress is typically how I go and obviously you've used it as well. It's very nice. Yeah, it's really a no brainer. I love WordPress and, you know, a lot of the the freelance web development I've done in, in my past has also been on, on WordPress and just big fan of, you know, it's matured a lot since it's early yeah. days. And it's certainly very powerful now. Yeah, it's funny because like I go from, I, you know, my friend Zach and I were coding ourselves HTML, CSS, really basic stuff, and we were not that great at it. To then seeing this WordPress and Weebly and all these other sites, and we're like, oh my God, this is perfect. This is all we need. Like, you don't really have to necessarily code from scratch unless you're doing a different type of project like you have done in the past. Exactly. So, and with that, how have you, how has this company, No Ego Records, how has that grown since like the beginning to now? Like, I mean, how many, how many artists are you working with? Like, how does that work? So in total, we have 75 artists signed the roster, and we've put out about 100 different releases. We've licensed our music to TV shows on MTV, on Comedy Central, on Bravo. We've had music featured in films by Disney, commercials. Like It's all over the board in terms of the licensing that we do, but that's been the main focus. Okay. And you know, in the past probably year, year and a half, haven't spent a whole lot of actual time on it, kind of just let these deals that we've had with sub-publishers and other you know music broker type companies that go out and pitch our music on, on their behalf. They you know continue to make deals and add revenue. And we're we're not really signing new artists right now. But like I said, I'm still listening to demos in case that one spark comes <laughs> through, ready to jump on it. But with everything else that's been occupying my time, the label is kind of gone to the, the back burner. But yeah. um, here it is uh, nine years into business and we're still profitable. We've been profitable every year because of the focus on, on the licensing business. Yeah. And that's awesome. Congrats on nine, nine years of that. That's that's impressive. And one of the things you mentioned earlier that I, I have to come back to, you mentioned like producer school in Burbank. You know what the school was? It's called Video Symphony. Yes. The reason I didn't mention it earlier is I'm not sure it's still there. Okay. I know they also had a program for film students where you learn Avid and that sort of video editing. And I think that school is still there, but I'm not sure about the audio one. Gotcha. But there, there are other similar programs in LA. There's a handful. There's one in Florida. It just you know, any type of audio engineering technical school is going to have these types of skills. And it, it was really great for me. Yeah. I mean, are there any other specific ones like in LA that you know of that are good? If you're not, no big deal. I'm just curious. I'm mostly so, thinking from my, again, my friend Zach, he's a, a, in music and so he actually is in school right now and in LA. So I was curious. So Icon is the one that I've heard the most good things about, especially in the like uh, dance music, electronic world. Okay. And the only thing with that is they don't have the pro tools classes up to like the expert level certification, which is what I did. But, you know, in hindsight, I don't know that I actually needed that. It's kind of like, like a lot of these industry certifications, you, you pay a lot of money for this <laughs> training and you get a badge, but does it really matter when you go to get a job or work in it in the field? Maybe if I were doing, you know, surround sound mixing for film professionally, but I'm not. So yeah. I take that with a grain of salt. Gotcha. And then, so what, when does drop track come into the, all this? 
Great. So as I was running the record label, No Ego Records, I realized that one of our biggest pain points and expenses is promotion. So you can make a great record, you can sign a great artist, and then you have the song, you put it up on iTunes, and what? You're competing with thousands of other great songs that are put up the same day. So how do you cut through the noise? How do you get your music heard by either a larger audience or industry influencers that have an audience that can expose your music to a a bigger world. And traditionally what the model is and what I did as an indie record label owner in the early days is you hire a consultant. This is somebody that is either like a, a radio DJ plugger or promoter or a club DJ promoter. Yeah. And you pay them a monthly retainer, a fortune, and <laughs> you count on them to push your music and to promote it on, on your behalf. And what I found is a lot of times this is just like sending money down a black hole yeah. because these guys, you know, sometimes they follow up, sometimes they don't. A lot of times they're just sending out an email blast. They have their list of contacts. They blast out your music along with all the other clients that they're working with. And then, you know, sometimes you, you get some results from that. Sometimes not either way, you're paying this monthly retainer, which is a fortune. Yeah. And so what I thought is, you know, I could do this on my own. I can build this kind of like email promotional tool to send music and get feedback on when people listen to it and have a a real way of following up with people based on actionable insights of whether or not they engaged with the music that would be essentially free or certainly a lot cheaper than what I'm paying these consultants for. So primarily I started this tool that's now drop track as a way for myself to cut expenses with this music promotion task that I had to do. And it worked. So I spent some time, I built a very simplistic version of what we have today, which is a essentially an email blast tool like MailChimp. But in addition to knowing when somebody has opened your email or clicked on a link, we also have the ability to say, okay, did they actually listen to the music? How far into the song did they listen? Did they download and they share it with somebody? And these, again, going back to the actionable insights, lets you follow up with somebody that you say, hey, I noticed you listened to the song. Are you going to add it to your playlist? Like, What's your feedback? All these sorts of conversations are enabled by that data. It worked for me. So I was able to license my music that I produce and other music on my label to various TV shows. The Jersey Shore came as a result <laughs> of doing this. Um, and their, their follow-up show, the Poly D Project, the spinoff. These licenses that I made were a direct result of sending and sharing my music through software that I had built. And to me, that was instant validation. That's like, okay, if this is valuable to me, I'm cutting out this huge third-party consulting expense and I'm using this do-it-myself tool. I could turn that into a product and it would be valuable to other label owners as well. So that was the original impetus. It was a tool for me and it's yeah. grown since Yeah, then. and how did you like how long did it take to actually build out the like MVP like initial tool? You know, I don't remember. I wanna I wanna say just a couple months. Okay. It, it it wasn't very sophisticated. It didn't have all the sorts of, you know, backend uh, authentication and dashboards and everything that you would expect from a, a SaaS or a web application today. It was very minimalistic, but it got the job done for me. Yeah. And then, so obviously transitioning from using it just yourself to wanting to sell this to other people or license it to other people, what, how did you get those first clients? And then, like, did you have to change the platform too much right away? Or like, how did that go? So great questions. What I did at the beginning is I thought I had validation of the concept that it was valuable to me and other labels would find it valuable, but I wasn't confident enough at that point to put a price on it. So what I did is I decided to launch a limited open beta, a free beta for the first thousand users to sign up. They would have unlimited access to drop track for life, but they would have to participate in you know, telling me about bugs and suggesting new features. And it was going to be a very collaborative experience with this first thousand group of beta users to, to really flush out the product um, for product market fit. Okay. And so that's what I did. So I, you know, along this time I had a day job, so I wasn't doing this full time. This was kind of a nights and weekends project where I was building this tool, you know, real users, real record labels, um, indie labels, and, and some independent artists as well were using the platform. They're having some success. I, I know there's one artist that got signed to a, a trance record label as a result of using drop track early on. And, you know, I would take their feedback and I would learn, what was working, what didn't work, how they were using some competitors at the time and and how those features might keep them from switching uh, if it were a paid product. And, you know, this, this back and forth went on for about a year to the point where I had a thousand users. I shut off new user registration 
and then ultimately decided to open it up as a paid product with a monthly subscription. And then it's just kind of grown from there. <laughs> That's, it's very, it seems like you're very intuitive with, with business, like testing things and getting users and getting feedback when, when, when people don't always necessarily do that. D- does that stem from like, do you think schooling? Have you read other books about it? Like, what is it? it seems to happen over and over again. You know, I, I think some of it does come from schooling, but also some of it comes from me just bootstrapping my way through the the early, you know, computer consulting companies <laughs> and the web development companies. And, you know, there's two main schools of thought when it comes to startup companies. To USC's credit, they, they teach both of them. One is uh, bootstrapping, which is you figure out early on product market fit and you find real customers that are willing to pay you for the value you're creating and then you grow organically from there. And then the other model is the Silicon Valley model of you have a big idea, you don't build anything, you raise a whole bunch of money with the concept, and then you figure it out how to build it and scale it along the way. And for me, just, you know, in particular where I grew up in Colorado, kind of away from the whole Silicon Valley culture, that latter version wasn't really an option for me. And even when I got to college at USC, I could see those two different paths in terms of building a company organically or raising a whole bunch of venture capital money. And the the former has always appealed to me more. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with VC. And, and, you know, if you really have a world changing idea that you have to have that immediate scale to start, that totally makes sense. But for the companies that that I've founded and that I've been involved with, for the majority, even, you know, the big companies I've worked with have all started small and grown based on, on real revenue. Yeah. And that's a model that, especially now you see it on the media and everything. Like it's talking about the millions and millions of dollars that people raise and the, the billion dollar evaluations. And like, there's nothing wrong with that at all in terms of like, Oh yeah, if you can build a big company, build a big company. That's what, if that, if that's what, what you want to do, but there are so many other companies that you don't need to take that huge VC money and go that route. It's like, yeah, like you said, be, profitable. And <laughs> it's a weird word to even say for some of these startups. Like you can actually make money from their company and go from there. And you know, I was it does seem counterintuitive, but I was also told by some investors, you know, when I w- was first starting DropTrack, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to at least explore this ladder route. Maybe I can raise some money and build this and scale it a, a lot faster than doing it organically. And the funny thing is, you mentioned profit. A lot of or, uh, investors are turned off by <laughs> this kind of slow start where you're, you're aiming to make money. Yeah. Because as soon as you put revenue on the books, they have an idea for what the valuation should be versus a company that has no revenue. Uh, and you can kind of you know, make up a number for what the valuation is based on the idea and the concept and the market size and any of these other, you know, models for valuing a company that aren't based on revenue. Yeah. So it's very funny that, you know, you can try your best to, to have a profitable company and that's actually not what investors want. Yeah. And if, I don't know if you've watched Silicon Valley, the show, but it, I mean, it's so hilarious. <laughs> the, the whole entire show is hilarious, but they make fun of that type of stuff all the time. Of like, yeah, revenue. We don't want revenue. <laughs> like, you know, again, to your point, like VCs then can judge your company. They know exactly what it's worth. That it's all these different things, but it is just a really interesting world, the VC world and everything in terms of business geared towards that now, but there's so many other options. And that's kind of a lot what I explore in this podcast too. Again, not taking anything away from people who raise money and go that route, props to them as well. But as you said, you got your first few customers through a subscription model. Like how fast did that end up growing then? Like, was it kind of what you expected? Did you have no idea? Like, what was that like? So the first customers came through a referral channel, basically, where at the bottom of emails that people send out using my service when they're sharing music with people at the bottom, it says, you know, want to promote your own music, try drop track, click here to learn more. And to this day, that's one of the best channels for for new customer acquisition, because they're clearly receptive, they're in the marketplace. And a lot of people that are receiving music also produce music. And and so it's it's just really a good fit. So yeah, that was really a great day when somebody signed up. The pricing at the time was $9 a month. Somebody put in their credit card, somebody I've never met a stranger (laughs) and signed up to use the service. And yeah, so that that was real validation that that I was onto something and it could grow from there. Since then, the growth has, has really been, you know, if you look at a, a chart exponential, we have more than 45,000 customers who've used, used the platform. 
more than 800,000 music industry influencers who have been promoted to, um, like people have uploaded their emails into our database and, and sent them their music yeah. um, and they've interacted with the service. We have over 50,000 tracks, songs that have been uploaded and shared using the platform. So yeah, it's it's been uh, a slow grind, but up and to the right the entire time. It hasn't necessarily had the the hockey stick like growth, but I never really expected it to for for this type of business. Yeah, and how many years ago did it start? So I want to say five years ago. It was really like the start of 2014. Okay. So yeah, about five. Okay, years. about five years. And so you get those you get those customers, and yeah, those first ones especially. That's it's so validating. The feeling is like, yes, yeah, someone will actually pay for this. It's amazing. And you continue to grow like since then. But what have been the challenges along the way, building it, growing it, anything particular? So at the beginning, I was doing all the development work. So I wrote the code for the website. I wrote the code for all the backend services, the email sending, the tracking, all, all that I did. As the company started to grow, in addition to development tasks and fixing bugs and trying to add new features, there was also customer support issues to deal with. And there was you know, business development and partnerships that I was trying to land and all the you know, backend operations of filing a corporation and doing taxes and all this type of thing that was taking me away from writing code. So a, a challenge right off the bat was finding another developer or two work on this with me. Yeah. And I've used Upwork, which used to be called Odesk, with a lot of great success. I, I really recommend the platform for finding freelancers. And yeah, so finding help with the coding, finding help with customer service. I hired again through Upwork, somebody to help me with my customer support tickets and for being responsive on our live chat with which uh, I don't think is up on the site anymore. But when that was running, she was responsible for that as well. And that really took the load off my plate with the day-to-day operations so I could focus more on the bigger picture things and the partnerships and deciding and prioritizing what new features and functionalities we should build as opposed to just maintaining the day-to-day. Right. And so how many people roughly are working now with, with DropTrack? So right now I have three freelancers, one developer, one customer service person, and a bookkeeper. And then, so what's the vision for this kind of moving forward, maybe the next few years? What do you want to have happen? So I guess the bigger vision is that DropTrack is going to turn into more of a full-featured CRM. So kind of like Salesforce has done for sales, DropTrack is going to do for music in that we're going to use, you know, big data, some machine learning to really drive actionable insights about when people are interacting with your music, what type of people would most likely interact with your music, and you know the right time to send a follow-up email, the right time to approach a DJ, the right time to approach a Spotify playlist curator to get your song on the next you know iteration of the playlist that goes right. out. All that, that type of intelligent, actionable information is kind of the direction we're going. Like I mentioned, we, we've seen pretty good growth of the number of customers, the usage, the number of tracks uploaded to the system. And so we've got quite a bit of data. And now the challenge and where I really really see growth potential is using that data to help people make deals, get their music signed and and really, you know, advance their music career using the software. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. And along that way, like growing this and throughout the whole entrepreneur journey you've had, like, how have you managed, like, you know, wanting to, I imagine you want to keep working on these things all the time. How do you manage that with maybe (laughs) taking care of yourself or hanging out with other people or a family? Like, how, how does that all work for you? You know, it's funny. Somebody just asked me this, you know, how do you do all these things at once or, or appear to be doing so many different things at once? And it goes back to my childhood, probably. And my parents would always say, you know, Paul, you're trying to do too much at once. Why don't you just focus on one thing and do that very well? And I just, I don't know if it was rebellion or or what, but I just reject that premise. I don't understand why you have to concentrate and do one thing if you can do a whole bunch of things well at the same time. And so to that end, what's really allowed me to do this is the idea of to-do lists and calendars. And these seem very, very basic. And it took me a long time, a lot of resistance to finally accept these into my day-to-day. And it's made all the difference in the world. When I say to-do list, I'm not talking about a list of everything that I need to do today or everything that has to happen for you know one of my companies or, or music or something I'm working on. It's one or two things max per project that's going to move the needle that's going to push the business forward or push a song forward or whatever it is I'm working on that's tangible, that's measurable, that I can accomplish 
pretty quickly. So this could be, you know, when it comes to drop track, writing out a new feature spec that the developer will then take on and build. And I'm not using time efficiently if the developer that I'm paying is waiting for me to come up with something for them right. to do. So it's important for me to move the business along and to unlock those resources to spend the amount of time to, to write whatever that spec is to, to move him along. That is important. The next part is calendaring, putting time blocks, putting you know two to four hour blocks of work time on the calendar so that you have you know, in addition to all the other meetings that you have and appointments and anything else you might put on a calendar, you actually block off time for work. And it could be working on something very specific, or it could just be like email time or, you know, time organizing notes or going through old materials or proposals or something for ideas. Whenever I have a specific project to work on, I like to block out time if it's two hours a day for three days, whatever the case is. And then I know because it's on the calendar, Nothing else is more important than that. I will put the phone away. I will not look at email. I will get off social media and only focus on that because that's what I've already decided should take the priority because it's on the calendar. And if it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist. Right. And what got you to this point of to-do list and calendar in this you know, specific way? Was it always like this? It was not always like this. I used to resist making any kind of plan. I used to resist using a calendar. I thought I could keep it all in my head. Oh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what it was. I don't think it was a singular event. I think it was, you know, I listened to a lot of podcasts and, you know, maybe it was something that Tim Ferriss said as part <laughs> of his four hour work week, or maybe it was something that Sam Harris said as part of his, you know, mindfulness and, and waking up podcast uh, about meditation, where the, these ideas of, of really using your time most efficiently. And if you need a tool to help you do that, that that's a good thing. And that like, that's an advancement of humanity that we're able to use paper to write things down <laughs> instead of keeping it all in our heads. And we're silly to not take advantage. Yeah. Of and, yeah. And that's very true. And I think especially for entrepreneurs, like time is even more, time is important for every single person. Clearly it's the most valuable thing we have. Some could argue, but like, especially for entrepreneurs, cause they're working on so many things and like, there's so many to do's like time. I'm, I know I'm at least always cognizant of time and where I can save a few minutes or op, not even save a few minutes, but like optimizing the time I have basically. And when you mentioned like Tim Ferriss and Sam Harris, were there other podcasts or books, audiobooks, anything that's kind of been helpful for you as an entrepreneur or personally growing anything? I mean, I sit in traffic a lot living uh, in LA, and so I've definitely, you know, been uh, on the audiobook and podcast train for a while now. And I definitely have some favorites. There's some in the the definite business realm. You know, we're talking about books like The Effective Executive, Think and Grow Rich, The Eighty Twenty Principle. These types of you know more business focused books, I, I think, are very helpful. Um, and it never hurts to to read these yeah. things. More personally, I, I think, you know, I mentioned the podcast, like the Waking Up podcast, the Tim Ferriss podcast, uh, biographies like the Ben Franklin biography, the Steve Jobs biography. Yep. I enjoyed those quite a bit. Yeah, I, I think those are some good resources and have a never ending bookshelf <laughs> or, or virtual bookshelf, it seems, of books that are either recommended or, you know, I've wanted to pick up and I never seem to have enough time to, to get. Yeah. Them. Podcasts and audiobooks though are so clutch, especially for like, if you have traffic every day you have to deal with, I mean, it's just such a valuable thing to have. And I know that's how I've gotten through a, a lot more books with that. I still like to read books. I like having the physical copy and I still have a bunch, but like having the audiobook or podcast is like, it just seems like such a life hack. Like if people didn't have this, you know oh, yeah. what I mean? It's just Here's here's one more level that I just discovered recently is the service called Blinkist. I have Blinkist. They summarize things or something. Exactly, but they also have summary audiobooks. Oh, I didn't know that. Instead of listening to a twelve-hour audiobook, they condense it down to twenty minutes, and it's it's fantastic. Wow, that does yeah, that would be helpful. But yeah, man, there's so many so many things to learn and so many books to read. One book too I would suggest is David Goggins. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He has a pretty incredible life story and like kind of a mindset uh, audiobook. And he actually, for the audiobook, he does like a podcast sort of thing where he has the person that's reading his audiobook, they'll stop for like a, a minute or two and then David Goggins will actually, actually speak about that certain experience. And it's a way to add more value to the book and kind of context around things that you have to sometimes take out when it comes to the actual book. So that may be something to look up as well. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, just yeah. And one of the last things, uh, questions I have is just: Is there any advice you'd have for aspiring entrepreneurs, just people trying to start a business or kind of thinking about launching and growing a business? You know, the one quote that always has stuck with me is something that I got from the uh, Steve Jobs biography, and it might be cliche, and I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase it, but I, th- I think it's very motivating and powerful for anybody considering starting a business. It's something like when you look around and you see that everything around us is built and created by other people, people that are no smarter than you and I, it's really empowering to realize that you can make a change. You can do something that other people will use. Um, and if they were able to do it, why can't you also? That's definitely stuck with me. And you know, it, it never hurts to just start something You know, at, at the smallest scale. If you have an idea for something, no one stopped. Yeah, you. and I think that quote I've heard definitely heard of that before, and it's it's it is so powerful because you, it makes it seem like anything is actually possible because there are there are people who just did something like they had to start somewhere. So again, that's why it's all yeah. just go grind. And then, where can people learn more about you and all you're doing? Cool. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Loeb Paul L O E B P A U L. LinkedIn also just my name Paul Loeb. And if you want to keep up with my music, I go by the DJ name Really Cute Cats. So you can check out reallycutecats.com. <laughs> I've actually, I heard about that from the podcast. You were on some podcast. I think people are going to need the story behind that real quick, if you don't mind. So <laughs> I've always liked cats, but I've been, I, I'm allergic to them. So it's, it's kind of this, <laughs> this irony. Um, but I actually do have a cat now, uh, Boris, who's hypoallergenic. He's a Russian blue and he's fantastic. But beside the point, I started <laughs> a, a blog, a cat blog called reallycutecats.com as kind of a uh, internet marketing experience. You know, I spent a lot of time trying to market myself as a musician and other record label artists using internet marketing techniques and social media, having some degree of success. But it's always a challenge when you're trying to introduce a new product or a new artist to somebody who's never heard of them. And what I wanted to try is, what if I take a product or, or something that already has a built-in audience and just market to them. Well, like, would I be able to do it? So I, I, I thought about cats. You know, there's plenty of cat lovers on the internet. You don't have to convince <laughs> anybody online to like cats. Um, and so I went on, you know, GoDaddy. And for 99 cents, I bought reallycutecats.com. And so I c- couldn't believe it was available. Yeah. I started just posting cat pictures. Uh, other people would send me pictures of their cats to post. And uh, again, it was built on WordPress and a lot of the out of the box SEO worked in my favor and um, started to get quite a bit of traffic. So, you know, I tried to then start monetizing it by putting on, you know, Amazon referral (laughs) widgets and, you know, cat toys and cat food services. And, you know, it worked and the the blog is still up. So (laughs) eventually I, I got my my own cat and started posting you know a lot of photos of him so that's mostly what you'll find that's out awesome. now but <laughs> as as i was continuing to work on my music and you know I, I came back to the same thinking why am i spending all this energy trying to introduce a new artist i was just going by my name paul loeb at the time um when no one's heard of paul loeb but everybody likes cats so i i kind of decided to rebrand my music alias my dj name to really cute cats i had a friend drop a logo that includes like a cat wearing headphones and it's pretty cute um, so, uh, yeah that's where it came from that's awesome well everybody definitely check out paul all he's doing i, I checked out the site and everything it's yeah it's really cool especially anyone interested in music check out his music paul thank you so much for coming on today man i appreciate you having me this is a lot of fun Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.